Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. It's now officially summer, and Heritage Radio Network's summer membership drive is officially on. Please consider joining the Heritage Radio Network community by becoming a member. Help support your favorite shows like Inside Julia's Kitchen and help Heritage Radio Network continue to bring you the most entertaining and thought-provoking food stories. Go to heritageradionetwork.org forward slash donate to join and check out the membership benefits now. Welcome to A Hungry Society, the show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guests are Lisa Gross and Sonia Karras, founders of The League of Kitchens, an immersive culinary adventure in New York City where immigrants teach intimate cooking workshops in their homes and participants encounter a new culture, cuisine, and neighborhood with every experience. Lisa is the daughter of a Korean immigrant and a Jewish New Yorker. She is the founder of the Boston Tree Party, and a former food writer for the New York Press. Lisa received her MFA from the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, Tufts University, and has a BA from Yale. Sonia was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and has always been surrounded by people and food from all over the world. She spent two years living abroad in Bangladesh in Italy before moving to New York City, and has worked in community gardens, farmers markets, and food pantries throughout the five boroughs. Sonia received her MA in Food Studies from NYU and has a BA in Art History from Wesleyan. Lisa and Sonia, welcome to Hungry Society. Thank you, Krisha. Thank you so much for having us. No, I'm so excited to have you here. Um, League of Kitchens, I touched on it in the, the intro, but it's kind of hard to explain, to write an intro for it because it is so dynamic mm. and interesting and uh, can you guys start with talking a little bit about League of Kitchens and sure, what it's like? Sure, sure. So we've been in business now for about four years, and I spent about a year before that setting everything up. And it really came out of my own personal experience in that, as you mentioned in my bio, my mother's Korean. She came to the U.S. in the 70s. My father is American of Hungarian Jewish descent. And actually, my Korean grandmother lived with my family when I was growing up, helped to raise me, and cooked all this amazing Korean food all the time. But whenever... I showed interest helping her in the kitchen. She would always say, oh, don't worry about cooking. You should go study because Mm. studying is the most important thing. And so I did. I studied a lot. (laughs) And, um, you know, I really appreciate where she was coming from, that she really wanted me to have opportunities that she didn't have, both educationally and professionally. But it means that I never learned to cook from her, and neither did my mom for the same reason. And so after college, when I was living in New York and really cooking for myself, for the first time um, and fell in love with cooking. I wanted to cook Korean food and this food from my childhood. And I tried to teach myself from cookbooks and from the internet, but nothing, because by that time, actually my grandmother had passed away, but nothing tasted as good as when my grandmother made it. You know, it always felt like everything was good, but there was some secret grandma something missing. And so I had this fantasy of, oh, I wish there was another Korean grandmother that I could cook with and learn her family recipes and cook with her in her home kitchen. 
Because I just realized that so often cookbooks or written recipes leave out sort of small, crucial details that are really the difference between something being good, difference between being good and exceptional. And those are often things that you need to learn from a person or learn, um, you know, in the moment, like at this moment, it should smell like this or taste like this or feel like this or sound like this. So had that thought fast forward, I ended up doing an MFA focused on socially engaged participatory public art and was doing a lot of different projects involving food because as you know, food connects with everything and Mm. food is such a visceral, powerful way to bring people in and graduated, came back to New York, wanted to do a new project in New York, was thinking about what about New York really excites me that I feel passionate about. And it's really the incredible diversity of the city and the fact that New York City right now is actually statistically the most diverse place on the planet. And yet there's often very little meaningful interaction either between immigrant groups or uh, between immigrants and Mm non-immigrants. So this idea from my early 20s came back to me. I was like, oh, what if I find not only a Korean grandmother, and I say kind of grandmother in quotes, to stand in for someone who has a really deep experiential knowledge of cooking and culture and their cuisine, Um, but people from all over the world who are amazing home cooks and create an experience for the public where people can go into the homes of these amazing home cooks and learn from them and cook with them. And that the experience would be just as much about creating these opportunities for cross-cultural learning and exchange and meaningful interaction as it would be about cooking and eating. So it started off as an art project, which I did a small pilot, and then basically realized it could be a company, a standalone company, an unusual company, but one where people pay for workshops like any cooking school. Um, And then it would be self-supporting and could really grow over time and not just be a small kind of one-off cool thing that happens. So I decided to launch it as a company and started that whole process. And then Sonia joined us two years later. Mm -hmm. Yes. As our program manager. And it's been an amazing, amazing collaborator in this whole incredible journey project we're creating. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, you can go online, you know, if you want to learn about, um, Uzbeki food. Right. You can cook with the an Uzbek instructor. Yeah. Yeah. Instructor. Instructor. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you you get to see how it's cooked. You get to help prepare. Right. And, and then it's in their wa- home. And it's in their home. And yeah. you walk away with a booklet. Yes. Of written recipes, written professionally recipes. written recipes that our amazing professional recipe writer Liz Tarpy creates, where she cooks with all the instructors and captures their informal recipes into tested professionally written recipes. Um, yeah, and so it's it's an unusual experience, but it's very kind of standard in that you just go online, look at our schedule, pick a workshop that works for you, pay online, and then get sent lots of information and show up at someone's door. That's amazing. And Sonia, how did you come to, to League, of, League Kitchens? of Kitchens? Um, yeah, well, Lisa and I actually know each other from high school. Uh, we both grew up in Washington, D.C., and we're involved at the time in a club for students who were trying to understand uh, being mixed race. We were both founding members of Fusion, (laughs) a multiracial students group. It feels like a really long time ago, but um, 
my dad's from Pakistan. My mom's also a New Yorker uh, of um, Eastern European Jewish descent, like Lisa's dad. So um, a lot of overlap then. And I was in New York uh, working actually for the nonprofit Just Food. And Lisa and I ran into each other at the Just Food conference. And she was... Um, had the idea and um, had yeah, it was done before the pro- we launched. Yeah, yeah, it was before the launch, and so was kind of looking for friends and family to do practice workshops with the instructors and kind of see what the experience was like. And so I was really fortunate that I uh, met her at that moment again and got to take um, our Greek instructor Despina's workshop. And um, yeah, then a few years later, Lisa was looking for a new program manager. I was still at Just Food and actually kind of sent the job posting out to everyone I knew. I was like, this is a great organization. Lisa's wonderful. You all should apply. And a few weeks later, I was sitting in Brooklyn Botanic Gardens thinking, wait, maybe I want that job. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I, I uh, emailed Lisa, asked if it, you know she had found someone yet, and... I think I four, like, no. Yeah, four days later, we, we were kind so, of yeah, met. Yeah, and, yeah, so I had started working. Yeah, <laughs> moving forward. So, um, And it's just been a really amazing journey. And, you know, so much of the structure of the workshops at that point was already figured out. And so there was this these boundaries that we were working within that were um, kind of giving us a... Um, giving us the structure to then kind of explore what else we could do. And I feel like that's been a big part of the last few years that's mm-hmm. been really exciting. So, Yeah, um, including our expansion to Los Angeles. Yeah. Yes, congratulations. Yeah. That's yeah. so massive and, yeah. and major and exciting. <laughs> uh-huh. um, yeah, I feel like League of Kitchens is such a, an innovative and like fascinating company. Um, I think it highlights and celebrates immigrant contributions yes. to food in yes. America, which yes. all of our food besides is, like right, indigenous food, food yeah. is right. <laughs> immigrant food. Immigrants. Yeah. Um, and Lisa, you, you touched on something really interesting that I think a lot of uh, first generation immigrants can relate to, yeah. which is, you know, cooking. No, no, no. Yeah. Don't, yeah. don't do that. You yeah. know, Become go a study. A lawyer. <laughs> yeah. Become a doctor or a lawyer. Yeah, which I did not do, but... <laughs> and, yeah, like, you know, cooking is not really seen as something that... Of value. Can, right, yeah. be a full career. Right. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, sure, yeah. Well, I think actually one of the really important things we're doing is recognizing and celebrating the knowledge and expertise of these women who are our instructors, who are all home cooks. So none of them have trained professionally to be kind of restaurant cooks, but they've been cooking for their families for like 20, 30, 40 years, sometimes three meals a day, you know, learning to cook from their mothers and grandmothers. Um, And I do think it's important, actually, that all of our instructors are women because this kind of knowledge and expertise has historically been devalued Mm -hmm. to the point of being internalized by the women themselves as having little to no value. Um, because it's been women's work traditionally. You know, 99% of the daily cooking that happens around the world is done by women. And like other areas that have been traditionally in the, the area of women's work, it's, it hasn't been recognized. But what's so incredible is they, these women who teach for us are, have such a deep knowledge and expertise of traditional cooking techniques and methods and cultural information and knowledge that 
that they are so excited to share and actually that our students, many of whom are professional chefs and recipe writers and food writers, are so excited to learn. And before teaching for the League of Kitchens, they had no opportunity to share this outside of their immediate families. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I feel like another thing that we're doing is within the larger food world, food scene, food media world, really foregrounding and elevating these women and their knowledge and expertise. Because also in, you know, contemporary food culture and food media, so much attention is placed on male restaurant chefs, many of whom are white. And so I think placing this attention on these women is just so important beyond the actual experience of the classes, which is so important in of itself. You want to add yeah. to that, Sonia? Yeah, I think there's like the, like Lisa said, the celebration and recognition that's happening in a more public space. I mean, I think one of the exciting things we do is um, through the League of Kitchens have opportunities for our instructors to showcase their skills and expertise in really public ways. You know, we did two dinners at the James Beard House earlier this year with our Nepali instructor and our Uzbek instructor. Um, We've done... And just about that, that was the first time they've ever had home cooks cook at the James Beard House and also was their first Uzbek and Nepali dinners. And the Uzbek one was their first halal dinner ever. So I think, yeah, there are those kind of opportunities to really challenge um, kind of what's happening publicly in terms of how we think about food, what food we value, what food we're willing to pay for, Mm -hmm. all of those kinds of conversations. But then another part that I find really interesting is that for a lot of our instructors who have had these skills for, as Lisa mentioned, decades, they're, they're skills that they didn't know were of value either because oftentimes if it's just expected of you to cook for your family every single day, nobody is writing you notes saying, oh my God, this was so amazing. You're incredible. You know, no one's paying to learn from you. Nobody's writing articles about you. And so I think that has also allowed our instructors to really see their own skills in a different way. Um, and for their families also mm. to see their skills in a new way. And I think that, you know, at a very kind of personal individual level has been a really amazing transformation, I think, for us to, to witness mm-hmm. um, as our instructors get press, as students write them notes, telling them how much they appreciated them, telling them how much they've learned from the workshops. They, they change their own understanding of, of, what they're, of what they are worth and what these skills are worth, so... Can you take me back to one of the first uh, League of Kitchen exper- Kitchens experiences mm-hmm. that you like put together? How did that go? It seems like there's so yeah. many like moving parts yes. to it. Right. Do you remember that? Yeah. So basically, when I initially came up with the idea, I was like, this is a cool idea. I would want to do this. But I had no idea what it would actually be like, both to put together and experience. So I kind of created a pilot where I found two women who still teach for us, Jeanette, our Lebanese instructor, and Afsari, our Bangladeshi instructor, and basically made up everything about the League of Kitchens. So I was like, hmm, how long should these workshops be? You know, and like, how should they? And I was like, well, it would be nice to start with food because food always brings people together and these women are incredible cooks and it's in their home and every culture welcomes people into the home with food, right? So... 
that was the beginning of the welcome lunch or the welcome snack and drink, right? And then I was like, oh, how many dishes would really feel like a feast and like you're learning a lot and that would make sense within a culture in terms of a big meal? So I was like, oh, maybe like five to six. I was like, okay, let's cook a meal, five, six dishes. Oh, how long does that take? Okay, so through about three and a half hours. Okay, this feels like we need a break. Oh, there'll be a meal. What time would, oh, that's about five and a half hours. When would be good to start? Well, I guess on weekends people want to sleep in or have a slow morning. So, okay, how about we start like at one? And then we have the dinner at like 5.30, which is early enough for people to go out afterwards. Okay, we'll end at 6.30. Okay, we're doing a workshop from 1 to 6.30. Let's try that. (laughs) Um, And then I just found um, friends and family to kind of be the initial students, including Sonia, which was so great. Um, And then I was like, oh, in their kitchens, they need more stuff. They need more cooking uh, tools to help teach because they're used to just cooking alone. So I got them what became our our teaching toolkits with extra cutting boards and knives and prep bowls, etc., I was like, oh, they kind of need some sort of training. What do, what do they need to learn? And also, I guess before this, I should say, I took cooking classes at all the major cooking schools in New York. Oh, wow. And that was actually really crucial because through that experience, I really thought about and learned about what works really well and what were the things I didn't want or what were the things I felt like could be improved upon or changed. And I was like, oh, okay, so these are the size of the apartments. What's the max number we could have? Mm, five to six, that feels about right. So it's just really like figuring out step by step what this experience should be and what kind of made sense. And then I did these, pra- so I did a kind of practice training session because we actually do about 40 hours of paid training with all of our instructors um, because many of them are amazing home cooks and incredible hosts and have a huge amount of teaching potential or have even taught other subjects. Like Jeanette, our Lebanese instructor, was an elementary school French teacher in Lebanon, but they haven't taught cooking before. So there, it requires some time and some thinking about what it takes to actually teach cooking and like talk as you go and explain which of these onions go in which dish and all of that. So ran these practice workshops And people just loved them. Like the friends and family who did them just were like, this feels so special. It feels so unique. It feels like such an honor and privilege to be in their home and to be learning from them. Um, Yeah, so we just started, started to run them. And then I think a really thrilling moment for me was starting to get feedback from strangers who were not my friends and family, who had found out about us through our early press or word of mouth to be like, oh, people I don't know are doing this and having an amazing time. Um, so, yeah, that was a very exciting moment. <laughs> Sonia, what do you think um, participants get from the League of Kitchens experience that they don't get at, like, the major cooking schools mm. or, you know, other sorts of uh, cooking demonstrations? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think Lisa just touched on this a little bit, but I think... That feeling, I mean, I'll say our instructors are all just really incredible human beings beyond being exceptional and very talented home cooks. They're really warm hosts. They're great storytellers. There's, um, you know, they, they are warm and friendly and, and hospitable and generous, um, both with their food and their space, but also just their, their personal stories, um, and so I think that, you know, for a lot of our students, they they leave feeling like they got to just spend the day with somebody that they might not otherwise have met um, and who 
is kind of a magical human being. Um, I think that one of my favorite parts of about attending the workshops is that you know, it's not just about the dish. I think so often with cooking schools, but also the restaurant experience, it becomes about an isolated plate of food. And I think when you're cooking in somebody's home, there's there's the context, the, the way the food fits into different, um, you know, different layers of meaning. So there's the, the context of the meal. I mean, I think our Nepali instructor, you know, I had gone to an, a Nepali restaurant in the past and there's this elaborate menu and you don't know what to order and you order whatever kind of sounds good and it all comes at the same time. But actually through our Nepali instructor, I've really learned that there's a very specific structure to the meal. She always has rice, dal, pickle, one green vegetable, one non-green vegetable. It's all served on the same plate. It's all served in a particular order on that plate. And there's a way to eat it. And you eat it with your hands and there's a way to mix certain foods together. And so I think that there's um, kind of that piece of learning that's happening that makes the food more enjoyable because that's the way it's supposed to be eaten. Um, Plus, like her talking about her mom and her mm-hmm. grandmother and all these stories about their family, and her family is actually connected to the royal family of Nepal. So some of her recipes are court recipes that you could never find out elsewhere. And she also has a very dramatic personal story, as many of our instructors do. And I do think that our students just feel it's such an honor and privilege to be taken in so intimately into someone's life and yeah. home. And, uh, yeah, you were going to say something? No, yeah. Yeah, And I think, I mean, one of the things that Lisa was talking about, you know, a lot of the details of how the workshops were structured, um, you know, just seemed uh, imagined in the beginning. But actually, you know, our workshops are five to six students. It's a really small group. You're all cooking together, eating together, doing dishes together. You're forming a, a, a familial feeling bond with one another. Um, they're in someone's home. It, it's such an intimate experience. Their family members might be there. You see the magnets that are on their refrigerator and the personal photos that are framed on their bookshelves and listening to the music that they listen to when they're at home. And so I think all of those details combined do create this really personal, intimate experience that, um, you know, New York, you see people every day on the street who might look different from you, but how many opportunities do you have to spend five and a half hours with a stranger and hear their story and, you know, hear them talk about, oh, this isn't just a a loaf of Uzbek bread. This design is from not just the city that I come from, but the neighborhood that I come from. And there's a legend about how this bread you know, manifest in this particular form and what this design means. And all of those stories that come out around food, I think, um, are a big part of what makes the workshop feel so magical for students. And I think also we often hear that, you know, at the beginning of the workshop, everyone feels a little awkward (laughs) and there's some trepidation. You show up in a neighborhood you've never maybe been to. You go into an apartment building you've never been to. You knock on a stranger's door. It feels a little, you know, maybe stressful or nerve-wracking in a certain way and then you're with a group of maybe five other strangers you don't know but we always hear that by the end of the five and a half hours like everyone's hugging people students often stay in touch with each other students often stay in touch with the instructor and they feel like the instructor is like their favorite aunt or grandma or you know some sort of familial member and that that is just really moving 
the yeah, I was just about to say the instructors. I feel like you, there are so many success stories, mm-hmm. um, and your instructors have you know articles written about yeah. them. Have even appeared on the Late the, Show with, with Stephen Colbert. With Stephen Colbert, yeah. uh-huh. like that. That clip is hilarious. Yeah, right? yeah, yes. yeah, amazing. Yes. Um, can you share some more success stories of your instructors? Yeah, I mean, most recently we were in the May issue of Oprah's Magazine. A feature story, six stages. It was so stunning. Um, The writer took three workshops with uh, Mirta, our Argentinian instructor, Demira, our Uzbek instructor, and Yamini, Yamini, our Indian instructor. And it's a really beautiful article and... The photos are gorgeous, and the the quotes they got from our instructors are really um, kind of lovely and illuminating. So I think that felt uh, quite special. Um, doing the James Beard dinners the was James very Beard special. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, we've been lucky to just get a lot of press and to collaborate with different interesting organizations and institutions. Even I mean, things like yeah. doing, we've started doing demos at the um, some of the green markets throughout like the city. Like Union Square and Granary Plaza. And even stuff like that. It's just, I think our instructors love um, different opportunities to be out in the world and showcasing their skills. And actually, one part of the business we're really growing right now is doing private workshops for companies and organizations. So we just did four simultaneous private workshops for the Watson Fellowship, which were these groups of college students in New York for the summer who will eventually be going abroad, and they wanted to use these workshops as an opportunity for the students to practice being in other cultural contexts. And I went in and talked to them afterwards and talked about how to comfortably navigate other you know, cultural spaces. Um, or we've had groups from like J.P. Morgan do team building or um, other companies. So I think... For many of our instructors, you know, before they taught for the League of Kitchens, some of them had very few interactions with Americans or people <laughs> right. outside of their community. Right. And so now that's just so that their worlds have expanded so much. Um, and, you know, I think one of the other really important things we do is really focusing on immigrants and the incredible contributions they make to our culture and society, which in this political moment just feels so so important yeah that's i think that's for me why i think leave kitchens is so cool is because you know it's on the surface oh you get to try a different type of cuisine uh for someone who knows it like intimately Mm -hmm. but it's bigger picture than that it's like a subversive way Mm -hmm. of creating like cross-cultural connections in a city like new york where you know you're in close such close proximity but people rarely cross those lines yeah and have like meaningful interactions with people from other communities and cultures exactly and league of kitchens does that in like this completely immersive way and i think the other really important thing is there's no staff at the workshops you know Mm -hmm. sonia and i are intentionally not there and that's because when the students arrive the instructor is the host the teacher the expert the one in control of the situation and if sonia and i were there the students would look to us to mediate, and the instructor would look to us to mediate. But it's just it's an unmediated experience where the immigrant, where it flips the conventional power dynamic, where usually the immigrant is in a service position. You know, it's the person, the waiter at the restaurant, the guy at the bodega, the woman at the dry cleaner, right? But here, it starts with the instructor is the one in the position of power, 
and sharing their knowledge and expertise. And, you know, our workshops are priced the same as workshops at the French Culinary Institute or, you know, ICE. And I think that's also really important. This is not like a charity experience. This is not something where you just like give 20 bucks and it's like, oh, you know, I'm being so charitable showing up here. <laughs> right. It's like, no, I'm paying $175 for a five and a half hour experience, which is actually a lot of value. You get two huge meals and very intimate instruction. And part of that is showing that this is of huge value. And I think when students pay that, they show up with a certain attitude of excitement um, and curiosity and presence to want to learn from this person and to value this person and what they have to share. And I think that's also really important. Absolutely. Yeah. The the price thing is so true. Like um, value perception in restaurants mm-hmm. is really like really a uh, really fascinating thing to me. Yes. Like if you make a steak forty five dollars instead of twenty, people mm-hmm. expect it to be way better. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, value perception is yeah really interesting. yeah. And often with immigrant food, you know, like or you know that there's some cuisines that people are willing to spend more money on, but mm-hmm. then you know when you want dumplings or you want kebabs or something, you don't want to pay more than five dollars so I think that there's there's a piece of that too where we're really challenging people's understandings of of what you're paying for and what what different foods are worth and saying this is just as valuable yeah it's like french food exactly yeah great so we're gonna take a quick break and we'll be right back with more a hungry society Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. All right, so we're back with Sonia and Lisa of uh, League of Kitchens, and now we're going to talk about dining in mm. both of your lives. So we didn't say this in the first half, but we realized like prior to the show that we have like a DC Boston mm. connection mm-hmm. going on here, uh, and both of you grew up in in the DC, DC area, right? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, do you have any like early memories of dining, like when you were growing up? Hmm. Well, so I guess, you know, I always talk about my Korean grandmother and her influence, but actually my Jewish grandparents who lived in Great Neck, in a very different way, were also very influential in my development and in the League of Kitchens becoming what it is, in that they were 
passionate travelers, passionate about culture, and passionate about food and restaurants, and going to different kinds of restaurants and eating out. And they took me on trips all over the world, and food was always a really big part of that. And I think my the the idea of the League of Kitchens not just being about me finding a Korean instructor, but really being about finding people from all over the world and creating this meaningful, fascinating, you know transformative experience for the public is really also was very much influenced by them and this interest that I got from them in terms of learning about different cultures through food and travel. Um, So yeah, I just went out to tons of restaurants with them as a kid. Um, And now when my husband and I travel, food is always the center of every trip we take. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And that also was one of the inspirations for the League of Kitchens was just really interesting, meaningful eating experience I've, experiences I've had abroad and how it really felt like those experiences gave me a kind of immediate visceral connection and access to that culture that other experiences there didn't. And so one of the things we actually hear from students in New York is that it feels like traveling abroad, you know, on (laughs) the subway or just having that kind of time out of time, culturally immersive experience you have when you travel that you you don't really get where you live. Mm -hmm. Um, And in a sense, you know, actually another inspiration was just so many articles I read growing up in Gourmet or Sever about like the writer going and cooking with a grandmother in the Caucasus Mountains (laughs) on this farm. And I was always like, oh, I want to do that. (laughs) And so basically what we do is create that for anyone in New York. Right. Yeah. What about you, Sonia? Do you have any early memories of dining? Yeah. I mean, I guess for me, and maybe this is, again, part of what draws me to the League of Kitchens experience is that... Dining in my family was really at home. Um, My mom cooked dinner every night. You know, we're a busy family, sports, piano, work, like all, you know, school, all the normal things. And dinner was the, the one time of day when we sat down together, we talked about our days, we connected with one another. And I think that 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 experience of you know, really my, my family and my early love connections forming at the kitchen table has really influenced the way that I cook and eat, um, now. That being said, uh, I was thinking about early restaurant experiences and I do have a really vivid memory of, um, my, my mom grew up in New York. My aunt and uncle are still here in Queens. And, uh, I remember coming up to visit in, um, it was probably like the late 80s and we came up for Christmas to New York and um, you know Christmas what are we gonna do we went to Chinatown I remember walking around Chinatown and seeing all the ducks hanging in the windows and you know the signs in a different language and feeling really transported to another place and you know, eating the food and being like, oh, this is, this is not the food that I'm getting at home. This is a, this is a different world. This is a different Mm. cuisine. And just realizing how many different options were out there, I think was really eye-opening to me. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I mean, it is interesting now living in New York that that kind of early dining, travel dining experience for me was in New York. So. And I'd say also something about that's interesting about both of us and our eating at home is that every dinner we had at home 
we had my dad would call it the 38th parallel, which is the line that divides North and South Korea. We basically have like a Korean side of the table and a kind of Western side of the table. And I know Sonia grew up eating a lot of Parsi food cooked by her Jewish mother yeah, uh-huh. and kind of more Western food. And there was this mixing of food and culture at our table and in our families. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've talked a lot about how I really think that for me, founding League of Kitchens and for Sonia, and she can speak to this, like working so amazingly and beautifully in the company, so much of it is about our personal experience being from two cultures in our families and growing up navigating between two cultures and translating between two cultures because that's what we do with League of Kitchens is that we move between the experience of our students who are mostly American and our instructors who are immigrants and like each of us have a parent who's an immigrant and understanding where the instructors are coming from, helping them connect to each other, coming from different cultures. And I really think that that is so much based in our own personal experience, which is also embodied in our food growing up. And maybe partially, speaking for myself, you know, my interest in always trying different foods and mixing different foods comes out of that experience in my family. Yeah. Do, do you guys go out to eat now? Yeah. 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 Do you have any favorite restaurants at the moment? Well, so I live in Ditmas Park, kind of in the Kensington border, and I have two young daughters, uh, one who's almost four and one who's 14 months, and we go to Sunset Park all the time because it's close and it's just so awesome, and I love, like Sonia described from her own childhood, exposing my children, particularly my older daughter, to this experience of eating in a different culture. And so one place we're really into right now is Simon's Barbecue in Sunset Park, um, they do Hong Kong style barbecue on skewers with charcoal or wood or something. it's just amazingly delicious. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 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 really bad with restaurants. I mean, I also love the experience in New York of going to a new neighborhood. Um, my brother and sister in law just had a baby. My mom came up. We went out to Coney Island to the boardwalk mm-hmm. to Sheepshead Bay um, to get Russian food. You know, so I mean, I love. I love that kind of experience in New York of going to a new neighborhood and trying food from a different place. Um, I also just love, you know, they're maybe not remarkable, but I, I love like the neighborhood restaurants in my neighborhood. I like the, I like going to the restaurants where, you know, the owner lives in the neighborhood. So and lives I, in Clinton Hill. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, oh, you know, okay. you see them on the street and they, rec- you know, I don't go out to eat all that often, but, like, people recognize you. The restaurants that have been there for a long time where people kind of come together and, and really the, the places that feel like fixtures of the, of the neighborhood. And I think that... Um, you know, New York, things change so fast and there's so much turnover and there's so many new things happening and rents are always increasing and restaurants are always not being able to renew their leases. And, you know, there's, there's, um, which is exciting and dynamic. And I love that about the city. And also there's that part of me that always tries to eat at the spot that's not like, you know, hasn't been pushed out or isn't new because I, I want those that stability where that I live to. Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, is there a place that you go to pretty regularly that's one of those fixtures for you? Um, yeah, there's like a Middle Eastern place in my neighborhood. It's, um, it's BYOB. It's like very casual. The food is good. It's like a very easy place. What's to just, the name of it? Oh, it's called Black Iris. Yeah. It's on decalb. Um, that's one, um, 
Yeah, there was a South African restaurant in my neighborhood, Madiba, that actually just closed that I loved to go, like, get a drink. When the World Cup was going on, it was always a fun place to go and watch the games and just had a lot of kind of vibrancy and dynamism. Um, it's always sad when those spots close. Yeah. yeah. And actually, the similarly, so we live in Ditmas Park, and my husband Dan and I go to the Costello plan, like, every week. And it's just a little neighborhood bar and restaurant with some outdoor seating. And it's the first time in my life, actually, that I've gone somewhere so regularly that we know the bartenders, we know the waiters, they give us free stuff. It's very warm. It's There is something. I. It's so interesting. I feel like I have the same exact feeling where either, like, I love going to different immigrant enclaves in New York and eating food as this cultural experience and trying new flavors. And I also just love going to the one place in your neighborhood over and over and building a relationship with the people there. Yeah. So we're going to talk about the worst dining experiences now. <laughs> do, uh, do either of you have like uh, one of the worst like dining memories? <laughs> and you can name the restaurant mm. or you don't have to, you can, you can leave it out. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I was just talking with my husband, Dan last night about the last big trick we took, which was to Sedona when I was pregnant, Sedona, Arizona, when I was pregnant with my first daughter. And it's this incredibly beautiful landscape and beautiful place. And the food there was so mediocre. Like, every restaurant we went to. I was just reflecting last night, like, oh, it's kind of sad that in such an incredibly beautiful place, all the food was just very bland and average. And what I just, kind of food was it? Like, was it was it like, like a combination American? of kind of like American and like you would think there would be good Mexican food, but it was just a lot of kind of mediocre, gloppy Mexican food and just mediocre, gloppy everything. <laughs> yeah. And it just feels so disappointing when you're spending money when food is just sort of ugh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, was, it wasn't like disgustingly horrible. It was just... So all of Sedona is your <laughs> choice for a disappointing so. meal? Yeah. Maybe it's improved. We were there five years ago. <laughs> Food culture has changed radically in our country. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, we had, and we had an amazing barbecue meal in a strip mall on the drive to Sedona. Oh. So I'm not dismissing all of Arizona. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think. Like, I do think that um, not going out to eat that much, uh, whenever something just feels mediocre, it's like, pretty disappointing especially knowing that there's such good food out there and so many good cooks out there right Um, yeah having a mediocre meal in new york is very just like extra distressing in a kind of fomo way of like right i could have spent this money elsewhere yeah Mm -hmm. and i just yeah yeah Yeah, i find that actually a little debilitating (laughs) yeah right yeah um that's true any recent meals that were just like uh just awful um, I don't, not out. I actually cooked an awful <laughs> meal <laughs> recently, which was really embarrassing for, I like roped my brother's friends into coming over and helping me move furniture. And it was like quite strenuous on their part. And I, um, offered to cook them a meal and it was the first time I was ever, I mean, this was a few years ago, but it was the first time I was ever cooking with Szechuan peppercorns. Mm. And I was, like, scaling the recipe, and I just, like, had, I just really had no idea uh, what I was doing. And it turned out, like, pretty inedible. And I was, like, <laughs> so embarrassed. Yeah, and I feel like Szechuan peppercorns uh, are, like, you have to you really know got them really know. well. Yeah. Actually, to bring it back to League of Kitchens for a minute, 
that's a great thing about League of Kitchens classes. Is like I too have had the experience of cooking cuisines that I'm unfamiliar with just from a cookbook. Like when I've tried to cook South Asian food from cookbooks, like it just doesn't turn out that good because certain spices or certain techniques you have to know how so to work much with easier them. to learn in person from a person like I realized after cooking with our South Asian instructors that I was always too scared to heat the ghee or the oil high enough for frying the spices and so the temperature was always mm-hmm. a little too low so they didn't because I was, I was always afraid of burning them mm-hmm. but it was too low so it didn't truly like toast enough and release enough flavor and just got kind of soggy and so that was why. And, like, I had to just see someone do it and be like, wow, that's really hot. It's really <laughs> popping. And it's okay. And that's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to sound like this and smell like this. It's not burning. It's okay. And that radically changed my ability to cook South Asian food yeah. at home. What were you trying to make with the peppercorns? Oh, God. I don't even remember. It was, you know, it was, like, one of these things. It was a, I read an article probably in Sever. I was like, so. But, you know, I think for me with spices in particular, like, once you start scaling and changing the portion sizes you know spices don't scale don't scale the in way. the same right. way as other right. food and I think that was really where my downfall was mm-hmm. <laughs> you were the first guest to talk about a food that they've cooked <laughs> yeah. that falls into the worst category yeah. so I honor your vulnerability yes. <laughs> so uh, my last question yeah. for both of you is if you could have your last meal in a restaurant where mm. would it be and who's invited mm. Well, actually, a dining experience I had that was another source of inspiration for League of Kitchens was in Istanbul at a restaurant called Chia Sofrasi, which is a very well-known restaurant. The chef has traveled all around Turkey and basically cooked with grandmas. And part of his life mission is to collect and preserve and disseminate regional, traditional Turkish food. Mm -hmm. And so when you go there, the menu changes every day. And they're just all these pots of food and dishes of salads, and you just choose what you want. And the food is incredible, and I would want to go there, and probably with my dearest friends and family. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah, I think for me, actually, also, it's a travel place. But I, so my um, my dad's from Pakistan, but his parents actually moved to Italy in the seventies, and so. A lot of my childhood, and my aunt lives there now, so a lot of my childhood I got to spend visiting them um, in Italy. And I just, there's so many restaurants there that feel like a, that are a home-cooked meal where you get homemade pasta and like vegetables from the garden out back. I just want to point out, it's really funny that the two restaurants we're choosing are like home-cooked food (laughs) in a restaurant setting, which is very appropriate. I I was just thinking about um, being at a restaurant there last time I visited where the owner, the, you know, the, the, um, the owner was in the kitchen cooking. Um, her family was kind of like out hanging out at one of the tables. There were these little kids running around and actually like kind of climbing up onto our table and grabbing like (laughs) bread off of our table. And it was, it was, even though I didn't know them, it just turned the whole experience into something that, you know, felt so familiar and and felt so intimate. And, you know, especially in Italy, there's always um, good wine and good food. And so like, um, and there's, there's such craft often with, um, um, so yeah, I think I would pick a really just like simple homemade Italian meal 
with my family because that's where it all began for me. And I will just say that I think this touches on something really important about the League of Kitchens, which is that ultimately it's about connection. It's about this deep emotional relational experience that's often lacking from our contemporary life and that this is a way to do it with people outside of your own little circle of friends and family and that it really truly makes the world feel personal and that you feel connected to people in these other places, not just as an abstract concept, but in an immediate, intimate, emotionally connected way. Awesome. And so where can listeners find more information about League of Kitchens? Leagueofkitchens.com. We're also very active on Instagram and Facebook. Perfect. Well, Lisa and Sonia, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having us. This is so fun. And thank you for listening to A Hungry Society. We'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.